0: Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are advised that the following podcast contains names and voices of people who have died.
1: Living with Diabetes, a podcast from Diabetes Victoria with Jack Fitzpatrick. Hello and welcome to the official Diabetes Victoria podcast. This is a great forum for those of us impacted by diabetes, whether it be directly or indirectly, to discuss ideas, share stories and build our diabetes community. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick, ex-Melbourne and Hawthorne AFL player and current Diabetes Victoria ambassador. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the Kulin Nation, where we are speaking from today, as well as all the lands across Australia and pay my respects to all elders past and present and to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening in. I've got a special guest for us today. Eighty years living with diabetes is an incredible achievement, and Anna Moresby is about to receive her Kellyan Victory Medal for National Diabetes Week. She was diagnosed at the age of four in war-torn England and has lived with diabetes ever since. It's an incredible achievement. And I can't wait for Anna to share her story. Anna, it's great to have you on the podcast, and congratulations on your 80 years Kallian victory medal. I don't know if an introduction does do you justice, but how are you in these strange coronavirus times?
0: A bit lonely.
1: <laughs> I can imagine.
0: I don't like being shut off from people.
1: <laughs> no, it's it's very much like that, and unfortunately, it's a it's what we have to do at the moment, and I know that uh, you're still keeping in touch with your friends, which we will certainly talk talk about later. But Dawn and Suzanne, um, in particular, you guys are still keeping in touch with each other.
0: We are. We're giving each other strength.
1: <laughs> yes, absolutely. Now, we'll get straight into your story, Anna, because it is an amazing one, and and there's a lot to get through. But eighty years of living with diabetes after being diagnosed as type 1 during World War II. Um, how did that diagnosis come about?
0: Well, I, I remember that the, the um, doctor apparently had told my father and my father came home and said he told my mother and me, and I can remember this, that um, I had diabetes, which meant nothing to my parents. They hadn't ever heard of the word and uh, my father explained that I wouldn't be able to, to eat any more sweets, as, as we call them in England. And uh, my father had brought bought home with him a tin of toffees, palm toffees. And it was the general thing that when this happened, we all had a, a, a palm toffee. But my father said to me that I couldn't have one then. But he promised me that as soon as my diabetes was over, that um, he'd buy me a tin of toffees. So I'm still waiting.
1: <laughs> so, eighty years later, you're still waiting for your tin of toffees, and that's right. Yes, <laughs> you haven't quite got it yet. So, as growing up in, in wartime England, that that would have been quite tough, but. Things like, you know, ratcheting for food and and insulin and things like that, that would have been really hard to adjust to this word that you guys didn't even know at the time.
0: It was very hard, particularly for my parents. My mother used to have to go um, once a month into the nearest town to get my insulin because it wasn't easily um, got at the chemist. And um, she would have to catch a bus. Eight o'clock in the morning, and make sure the allowance of insulin had come through. So that must have been a, a tremendous strain for her.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, and and for yourself, I, probably, I guess at the time, um, you know, you're only four at the time of being diagnosed. But all of that sort of stuff around the did you did you fully comprehend it at the time, or is it now that you look back and you go, gee, that would have been really difficult for for my parents?
0: Well, I I do look back now, that's I realized when I was, oh, about nine or 10, I think, it, it, well, I had a younger brother by that time and I realized that how hard it was because we were used to the sirens going and when my brother was born, the siren went, but my mother still had to go to the hospital to have my brother.
1: And of course, the sirens you're talking about are the airstrikes, is that right? Yes. Yeah, geez, I, I can't even begin to comprehend what that would be like. And let alone if I was having a hypo, I can only imagine I can get grumpy at the best of times when I'm having a hypo, let alone when these sirens would start, Anna.
0: Well, I, even now at, at 80, if I see a film when that siren goes, I sort of get the quivers
1: because I, it brings I,
0: it all back to me.
1: <laughs> I can only imagine. I, I can't fathom what that would be like. Now, 80 years ago, this all was that you were first diagnosed. So what are just some of the changes that you've experienced in 80 years of management with diabetes?
0: I can remember my parents receiving a book about diets for diabetics, and it was written by Dr. Lawrence, whom I would meet later on, and it was the the red line and the black line diet. I remember that book very clearly. I actually
1: gave it to I actually gave it to Gwen Scott. <laughs> yes. Okay. So Dr. Lawrence, of course, who was one of the fathers of the International Diabetes Federation, and he founded Diabetes UK, and also Gwen Scott, who went on to become a CEO of Diabetes Victoria over here in Australia. Now, just a, a brief outline of other things you do with, with when preparing for this podcast. You spoke of. The difference between you know being able to prick your finger and get the blood versus um, when you started and you had to do urine testing.
0: That's right. Well, I can remember my father getting some te- test tubes, I think from a, a pharmacy, and pouring the, um, I think it was called Benedict's solution into the um, into the vial, and then dropping a tablet in. And you waited, you hoped it stayed blue, quite often it would go green and then orange, which meant you had a lot of sugar in your urine. But when you look back and think how inaccurate it was, that it was the only thing that we had.
1: You were given some news when you were about 12 years old that um, that sort of made you more determined to live well with diabetes, is that right?
0: Yes, because I had a lot of problems with my diabetes up until that stage, and then my father insisted that we see another doctor, and he, by this time, after reading the book by Dr. Lawrence, he found out that he was at King's College Hospital in London, so we got on to that, and we went into the hospital to meet him, which was quite scary as a child.
1: (laughs) So, Dr. Lawrence was was quite... Gary. And, and how old would you have been the first time you met Dr. Lawrence? About 11.
0: About
1: 11. Okay. And and at which time was it, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you were actually told at one stage you, you wouldn't live to make it to 30.
0: That's right. It wasn't so, uh, what, by Dr. Lawrence. It was by the previous doctor I was seeing.
1: Okay. And so this doctor had told you, what, what were the reasons that this doctor gave you for not seeing 30?
0: Well, he said that diabetics don't live long and he said they don't have a chance and because we can't get the food because of wartime Um, it's hard to get the insulin but he said with the research that we have for diabetes (laughs) just shows that the diabetics can't live very long their lives are shortened by many years
1: and here you are 80 years later getting your Italian victory medal I'm sure you'd like to speak to that doctor and prove him wrong.
0: Oh, gosh, yes. I'd love to. <laughs> uh,
1: and, and just quickly on that mindset, um, how, how it made you more determined, do you think, and it made you want to prove him wrong? Oh, gosh, yes. It,
0: I, I had a wonderful father who was a very determined person. And then when he told what this doctor told me, he said, we're going to beat him. And I grew up with that in my mind. I don't care what that doctor said, I'll prove him wrong.
1: And you certainly did. Now, you then went on to meet Dr. Lawrence at at King's College. And how long after that was it that your family decided to move to Melbourne?
0: Oh, that was, you know, well after the war. I can remember the end of the war. It was just amazing. We were told at school, if it happened on, on the Thursday, we were allowed Friday off. We didn't have to come to school. (laughs)
1: <laughs>
0: and and it, did, it did end on the Thursday. <laughs> so wow. we got our, our day from school.
1: Oh, what more do you want? A day off as a kid. That's,
0: oh, that's, as good as it
1: gets. <laughs> that's awesome. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but you came over to Australia by boat and spent six weeks on a boat. And you may have been a little, or your dad may have been a little bit cheeky and not told people that you had diabetes.
0: That's true. Fortunately, we had a very good cabin steward. My father apparently gave him some extra money and told him if he helped looked after me, that he'd be given more when we got to Melbourne. And this steward was extremely good. He would carry me out into the fresh air because I was very seasick. And he helped my father get me through without seeing the ship's doctor. So that was that was pretty
1: good <laughs> That's a very good effort, but you didn't you didn't want to move to Australia, is that right?
0: Oh no, no, I was so happy in 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 England, and you know I had my aunties and uncles and people that I know, and I had a, a boyfriend and I didn't want to leave and it was just so much the unknown But when I was an adult, I realized that my mother had felt Exactly the same way. She didn't want to come.
1: And then coming to Australia, you did. So you spent your six weeks on a boat and you're dealing with diabetes, which could only be tough. You're having to hide it from certain people, I can imagine, because it needed to be sick. And back in Australia, you, you met Dr. Lawrence again.
0: Well, years after. That was, that was amazing when he came to start the the, the Diabetic Association, I think it was called then.
1: Yeah. The Victorian Diabetic Association is what it was known as then but that is now what is Diabetes Victoria and you were at that first meeting.
0: Yes, well, I, I, it was amazing and, of course, I had met Gwen Scott. I was one of her first patients when she, um, she was more or less the first diabetic educator and she was of wonderful help, wonderful help.
1: And part of this, uh, the Victorian Diabetic Association, then, which is now known as Diabetes Victoria, a lot of this, um, which we will touch on a little bit later, but I believe was um, was good for you in terms of helping with peer support and things like that.
0: It was. It was marvellous. <laughs> it opened up so much of my life, and there were actually people there that could help you, and. Um, And until I'd actually met Dr. Lawrence, we'd had very little help. My parents had no very little help at all apart from how to inject an orange. That was about the only thing they were (laughs) really tried to become expert in.
1: Which is just a little bit different to to living with diabetes, that's for sure. What else do you remember, um, before we move on, about that first, Diabetes Victoria meeting. Does anything else stand out?
0: Well, I thought it was wonderful because I had got used to going to King's College Hospital in London and where the whole diabetic wing was worked out and it was sort of especially yours. And um, to, to after Dr. Lawrence had come out and um, Gwen Scott had started her um, diabetic education. It meant there was some security for me and and, and support, and also support for my parents, which was marvellous.
1: Which, as we know, is so key for um, exactly what Diabetes Victoria are trying to do today with um, supporting, campaigning, empowering people um, who are either living with or affected by diabetes. Now, you finished school, and this amazes me, but at the time, you weren't allowed to become a nurse because of government rules. Why was that?
0: Well, I think it was something to do with the government um, paying for you. Uh, Look, I'm not quite sure, but I know you couldn't do nursing and you couldn't do teaching. Anything the government was involved in, you were not allowed to do as a type 1 diabetic.
1: And is that because you were seen to be a little bit of a risk? For the yes. patient, maybe. yes, yeah. and the because kid.
0: I can remember in those days you couldn't get insurance. Um, you were known as a disabled person, and that label stuck on you, which made us—we diabetics—it made us fight all the more to prove we were no different. That just
1: uh, boggles my mind to even even think about that, and. And to go back a little bit, I assume it was the same in England. So growing up as a, as a schoolgirl in England and you are essentially labelled as disabled, that, that must have been difficult. That was difficult.
0: Uh, even though some of the time I didn't understand why I should be disabled and I would say to my parents, I don't know what it means. To my father's disabled. He has polio on both legs. I'm not disabled. I don't look any different. But I really resented it.
1: Which, I mean, growing up in England during the war, you spoke that you were at school when the war finished. But it's tough enough being a kid and and trying to fit in. And it's certainly tough enough growing up through a war when you've got airstrikes and rations for food and medicine. But that extra thing of being considered disabled, it must have been really, really tough.
0: It was. It was very hard. But it made you more determined. It made you determined to prove that what, what was disabled? Disabled was what my father was, having polio on both heads. I didn't look any different. I didn't feel any different than any other girls. But I was going to prove that I wasn't any different.
1: And you've certainly done that. And and when you came to Melbourne, and was it the same? Were you considered disabled and you were very determined to prove to people that just because you have diabetes, it doesn't mean that you can't do stuff that other people can do?
0: It was the same to begin with, but you could see the changes coming. And I, I was involved in going to different groups where there were people that, um, that had started travelling more in Australia. and um, Particularly when you went to America, you realised they could do a lot more than we could. And I can remember we came... But the first time that we went um, overseas, um, we saw signs in America that diabetes kills and all these, um, so much more advertising about it. I joined, When I was in America, I went to the Diabetes Association there and realized it was the people with diabetes that changed things realised that we had to do that in Australia. So a lot of and, us got together and, and started doing this.
1: And what a great job you've done. I, I mean, I to learn that you know people were considered uh, disabled, with I, I had no idea until speaking with you. So for yourself and everyone who campaigned for that change, I, I think that's a great effort. Now, as I said, you finished school and you weren't allowed to become a nurse, but you always wanted to help people. And, and was that? through your experiences of growing up with doctors and nurses and, and things like that?
0: I think part of it was, but I, I can remember, I think because when I was very young, I knew what nurses were and I think that's when that I thought, well, with diabetes, whether well, I could help other people with diabetes if I was a nurse.
1: Yes, and, and because you couldn't become a nurse, you became a medical technician. Yes, in so I,
0: still kept, I still helped in another way by pricking people and taking blood from them, which you
1: certainly did. didn't you make me very pretty, popular. <laughs> <laughs> you must have some pretty good brains to become a medical technician in biochemistry, Anna.
0: I think it was just determination, just determination. And wanting to do something, if you want to do something so badly, you fight different ways. And you yeah. find, um, I, I was under a Dr. Downey for a short while, who didn't get on with my father very well. They had similar personalities, very dominating. But later I got on to the doctor, Dr. Bridal, and, um, he became a very special friend. He was, um, he really helped me going into Australia.
1: Determination is, is an overarching theme and, and continuing theme amongst your life. And you've spoken about Gwen Scott. Um, as I said, she was a former Diabetes Victoria CEO and she actually set up the profession of diabetes nurse educators in Australia. Am I, am, am I right in saying that?
0: You are. Yes.
1: Yeah, now, yeah, that's look, what, a, what a woman, Gwen Scott. Now, um, on, on top of that, this is where peer support comes in and how important things like peer support are for you?
0: Very, very important because I think the one thing that happens when you're diagnosed whatever age you are, it gives you a tremendous shock and it's frightening. You're told about all the negative things that can happen to you but sometimes you're not taught that you can live. It's not a normal life but it's a condition life but you can do normal things but it just takes you've got to fight to find the right people to help you and give you the support.
1: And and this is where that peer support is so important because as, as we all know the doctors and the textbooks and medical journals and the educators they're fantastic and, and they give you as much advice and the information as possible but We sometimes know that living with it isn't like it is reading in a textbook and and that's why it's great to be able to share stories and things like that with other people who who are living with it or experiencing it.
0: It's very important, very important. If you've had a bad day with lots of hypos and you say to another diabetic, you just feel sluggish and really miserable, they know exactly how you feel. And you know your family try very hard to understand. It's only a person with the same disease that really can understand how you feel.
1: Yes, absolutely. And and this is how you've met your really good friends Dawn and Suzanne.
0: Oh yes. We we're really good friends. We have a lot of fun together.
1: I I can imagine. Now, this is amazing. So you, you, Dawn, and Suzanne are all qualifying for Kellyan Victory Medals this year. Yourself, 80 years, which is only the second person in Victorian history and the first woman in Victoria, but Dawn and Suzanne for 50 years and 70 years respectively. So between the three of you, that's 200 years of living with diabetes.
0: Well, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? <laughs>
1: It's incredible. I feel like I've done it for a lifetime and it's only been eight years. I can't imagine 200.
0: <laughs> no, guys, was, was Shane, Dr. Shane Hamling was a, a doctor then and he was very proud of we three girls.
1: <laughs> uh, you guys should be proud of yourselves. It's, you guys must have forgotten more about diabetes than I could ever learn I think. <laughs> it's, it's incredible but so you guys met, and part of this was through peer support that you helped establish in, in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne, was it?
0: Yes, yes. We all, we all met through there, which was uh, um, a very good go-ahead um, group. It was very good.
1: And you, you said earlier, but during these times of coronavirus, and um, I, I would wish we could have be doing this in person, but we're obviously doing this over the phone at the moment due to social distancing and, and isolation and things like that. But you, Dawn and Suzanne, are all keeping in contact and calling each other and, and these types of things.
0: It's helped tremendously because having been sort of closed in a lot and I, um, my son comes to see me and stands at the door and goes to the shopping and I can't give him a hug. It's just not mm. natural.
1: <laughs> no, it's, it's not natural at all and these times of, um, isolation, where we are shut away, and, and it is a bit unfortunate. But again, it much like being diagnosed with diabetes, and, and much like you know your experiences of growing up in England during the war, and much like you're not being able to be a nurse when that's all when what you wanted to be when you grow up. It's, we just have to get on with it, don't we? Unfortunately, we do.
0: We do. You learn. I think once you become a diabetic, as you yourself know you realize that it's up to you. You can't expect the world or people to change. You want them to understand, but first you've got to understand and become very familiar with it and also learn that people's reaction will be very different to you. And that's something you learn because a lot of... A number of people with diabetes don't like to be called a diabetic, and I can understand that, but I've been a diabetic so long it doesn't worry me, but I perfectly understand that a person doesn't want to be known as a diabetic.
1: Going back to what you said about learning as much about it as possible and becoming as familiar with it, because you can live pretty much a normal life and do Whatever it is you do, diabetes doesn't have to stop you living the life you want. And you've done a lot of traveling in your life. Yes, I have. So where exactly have you been and how how have you managed that over the time?
0: Well, I went back to because I was born in England. I've been back to England about six times. And the big trip I did, my husband was a chemical engineer and he studied corrosion. So we went to the United States, we took camping gear, we bought a combi van in the United States, and we caught up with different scientists right through down through South America, finishing up in Paraguay. And it was a marvellous trip. Um, Dr. Bridal had kindly given me a list. Of English speaking doctors right through the Americas. So that made it a lot, of, gave us a lot of confidence. And I think because I love traveling so much and hearing the different languages and trying to speak Spanish when it was appropriate, it was very exciting. And during those seven months, we had different things happen that we couldn't get back to Australia um, straight away. And uh, I was perfectly fit. I didn't need a doctor. I think I had the best health I'd had for years. And it finished up, we were away for seven months. And uh, it was, um, well, it was just marvellous. It was just marvellous. And the excitement of travelling always thrills me. And I never let my diabetes get in the way because I got so used to working things out. For part of the trip, we had students from Monash University come and help with the driving and they would come, one would come every six weeks and that sort of changed the atmosphere. Uh, It was a bit hard for me at times because I was the only woman and they were ending up with four males. but... um, I got them organized. I got them
1: organized. <laughs> I have no doubt at all that you did, Anna. absolutely no doubt. But, I mean, the trip sounds amazing and this, you know, just further goes to demonstrate that um, being prepared and understanding your diabetes as much as possible and, and thinking ahead and trying to use foresight. I mean, for example, the English-speaking doctors and, and you really can live the life that you want with that dogged determination that you obviously have as well.
0: Yes, well, it, um, you, you, you turn it around and make it work for you, in, in fact. It's, it's, um, you, you do sort of the opposite thing. You make the diabetes work for you, which sounds, exactly. a, bit, which sounds a bit back to front, but it, you can do at times.
1: No, I, I agree with you because uh, at this stage, until hopefully they, they find a cure, we, we have got this condition for life. So you absolutely try and make it work for you as, as best you can now. I could talk to you for hours and hours. In fact, it's National Diabetes Week, as we know, and I could speak to you for the whole week, but we are running out of time. Are there any um, lasting messages you would like to get across or um, anything like that or what National Diabetes Week means to you or what the Cullion Victory Medal means to you? Well,
0: at first when I was told about the, the medals, I was naturally a lot younger. And I didn't see the point in getting a medal because you were still alive. I, I just thought that was rather back to front. But um, <laughs> I matured a bit after that when I learned more about it, the reason why, and about the man um, who named it the Killian Medal and about his son dying with diabetes. I, I was starting to learn that I could be a help to younger people, and that made it Made it quite different. Quite
1: different. Uh, I, I'm sure that the people listening to this and listening to your story are, are, are more than inspired, and I think a more than deserving recipient of an 80 year Kellyan medal. Um, but in terms of living with diabetes, your determination to, I mean, live as good a life as possible to um, prove the you know the doctor wrong that said you would be lucky to make it to 30. Uh, all of these. Um, your final sort of messages to convey?
0: The, The most important thing is to learn as much as you can about diabetes. Don't let the diabetes rule you because it does when you're first told. It's such a shock that you're going to have a chronic disease all your life and it's a shock for everyone. But gradually you learn that you can take charge of things
1: I think you have summed it up as, as well as I could possibly have tried. I mean, if you've been able to do it for 80 years growing up in war-torn England, going through school, six weeks on a boat coming out to Australia, making new friends, dealing with a new country, living with it, having to do the urine test now and compared to the modern technology, if you can do it for 80 years, then I'm sure a lot of people are inspired that they can do it as well. And I. I I appreciate you so much for coming on this podcast and, and sharing your amazing story. As I said, I could talk to you for hours and hours.
0: Thank you very much. It's been a delight meeting you. I feel that I know you in that short time.
1: No, I I, I can't wait until uh, things ease up in, in the diabetes, in the coronavirus world, and hopefully we can have a cup of tea or something at some stage. That would be lovely. <laughs> that would be amazing. But thank you so much to you and, And to everyone tuning in, once again, we really appreciate you sharing your story. Happy Diabetes Week! Congratulations once again on the Cullion Victory Medal. And uh, hopefully, we'll see, and uh, maybe you can get to 90 years. Fingers crossed.
0: (laughs) Now, that's really being (laughs) positive.
1: We'll see how we go. Thank you Um, again, Anna.
0: Thank you, Jack. Bye-bye.
1: Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the program. If you'd like to contact us, it's very easy. Simply send an email to podcasts at diabetesvic.org.au or of course all the information you'll need is on the website, diabetesvic.org.au.